The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Visitations is a title of the series that we're going to be doing the month of December. And uh, God revealed truth to the patriarchs and patriots through visitations. Either God visited them or he sent an angel to visit them or maybe he sent dreams or visions. And uh, so we're going to look at different visitations. This week we're going to look at uh, a message I've entitled Pictures and Promises of the Coming Messiah and how God visited uh, Noah, Isaac, Aaron on the Day of Atonement, a little prophet named Balaam, and then Isaiah the Great Prophet. And we're going to look at all five of those today painting pictures and promises from the Old Testament. That's why all the songs we sang look ahead to the coming Messiah. And then next week, we'll look at uh, the, um, the early visitation of Elizabeth and Zechariah, John the Baptist's parents. Then we'll look at the unexpected visitation of Gabriel to Mary and Joseph, and then the ultimate visitation of the Messiah on Christmas Eve. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks, and I'd uh, love to have you join us and bring some friends. So let's pray, and we'll look at God's Word together. Father, it's with uh, grateful hearts that we come into your presence today. We're grateful for the privilege of worship, grateful for the body of Christ gathered here and around the world, and grateful for the opportunity to talk about the visitations. So Father, would you go before us? You tell us, Holy Spirit, that you'll guide us into all truth. And so I pray that you'll guide us into all truth this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. There's a saying that says, a picture is worth what? thousand words. And so I want you to watch this little video with me and uh, tell me what these pictures mean. It's the most wonderful time of the With the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the happiest season of all. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. So what do those picture, pictures teach you right there? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, parents torture kids and uh, kids hate Santa and we go on and on. But here's what you got. When you listen to that song with those pictures, here's what you get. They don't match. The hap-happiest time of the year with screaming kids. The hap-happiest time of the year kids wanting to run away from that. We're going to paint some pictures from the Old Testament, and we're going to see they do match. We're going to see when the pictures are painted in the Old Testament, looking ahead to the one who would be the Messiah, those pictures match. Those didn't, but these will. 
And so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 6. If you have your Bibles or your apps, that's where we're going to begin Genesis chapter 6. It's a story that we're all familiar with. It's a story of Noah, the flood, and the ark. Noah, the flood, and the ark. It's a, it's a section of God's word that we studied when we were little kids. And uh, my thanks to Amy, who uh, pastored to women. She gave me a book by Nancy Guthrie that a lot of you women went through this past fall called uh, Prom- The Promised One, uh, Jesus in Genesis. And her section on Noah is absolutely excellent. And so uh, we come to Genesis chapter six and we look at verses six through eight. And your Bibles are up on the screen. We'll look at these pictures. And Noah is a picture of grace. Noah is a picture of grace. Let me show you how I get that and how we get there. So in Genesis chapter six, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But look at the last verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah didn't find grace. Grace found him. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord bestowed favor upon Noah. It's just like the amazing grace that we experience in our life. And the result of that is we become righteous and then we should walk blamelessly just as Noah did for much of his life. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Well, you know the story. We learned the story when we were kids, and uh, you, you can only picture what must have happened. Noah begins building this ark, and uh, I would imagine people begin to mock him, laugh him, ridicule him because he's out there cutting down trees, hewing lumber, building a boat. If you do the chronology in Noah's life, it took him somewhere between 60 and 85 years to build the ark, about the same amount of time it takes to reconstruct I-35. Somewhere between 60 and 85 years, he's out there working on the ark that will one day become the the place that is a sanctuary for he and his family. Now, children's books, and some of you have decorated your baby's nurseries, and you walk down the hallways of Sunday schools, of churches, and children's arenas or areas, and and you see beautiful pictures of Noah's ark. You see pictures of very idyllic of the animals and the rainbow and how everything must have been so perfect and so beautiful. Let me remind you, the reason why this took place is because the because of the evilness of man. The, the reason why the flood came was because of the unbridled wickedness and evilness of man that brought about destruction and judgment. And so we see happy pictures of Noah's Ark. By the way, somebody sent me this picture a couple of years ago. Uh, the caption on the bottom says, uh, uh, Miss, Miss, uh, Noah's wife says, I told you not to bring that woodpecker on board. <laughs> but these are the pictures we typically see. If you were to go to the Sistine Chapel, you would see another picture. In the fifth or sixth frame, I forget which one it is, but in one of those frames, it shows a bunch of people on the outside of that ark beating on it. It's not a picture you see in your baby's nursery. Not a picture you see in the hallways of Sunday schools. Not a picture you see in children's Bibles. But if you go to Sistine Chapel, you would see that picture. I'd pop it up, but in that day and age, that they were uh, everybody else nude, so I didn't want to pop that up in front of you with kids. So... But the reality of it is, I want you to think about the other aspect of this thing. People left behind in the flood. People grouping together, trying to rip a door open so that they could be saved. Ultimately, the screams and the cries of men and women and children who are being drowned. So we don't want to think about that, but that happened as well. So we see these idyllic things, but we recognize much more happened when God decided that he would destroy the people in the universe at that time. And if it teaches anything, it teaches us and should serve as a warning 
to our culture and to individuals that, that there's only one way of escape, and that's the way of God. And so what we see is this great warning to us as a culture and to us as individuals to get on the boat from the grace he offers. So, Pastor Gary, what, what are the parallels here? What are the parallels between the flood and Noah's Ark and, and the coming Messiah? I mean, you told us you're going to paint a picture, so what are those pictures? Well, this scenario pictures the coming Messiah in a number of ways. And Nancy Guthrie brings this out in her book, The Promised One. So here are a few ways that we see uh, this picture of grace of Noah. First of all, the ark was a refuge from divine judgment. The ark was a refuge from the divine judgment. If you escaped the divine judgment, you had to be on the ark. Likewise, the coming Messiah would be the only refuge from divine judgment. Just as the ark was the only refuge, the Messiah would be that. And in Acts chapter 4, it says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which one must be saved. So there's only one name through which salvation will take place, and that's the one who would come as Messiah, who did come as Messiah, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see is that the ark was a refuge from divine judgment. Likewise, the coming Messiah would be a refuge from divine judgment. The ark provided security for those who were in it. The coming Messiah provides absolute security for those in it. So just as the ark provided absolute security, the coming Messiah provides absolute security. The moment of your salvation, one of the great guarantees given to you is a guarantee of eternal security. Some of you grew up in traditions that taught you could lose your salvation, that there's some sin you could commit or, or turning away and you could lose that salvation. The scriptures teach the opposite of that. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. So we are safe in the hands of Jesus. So if you look up here, we are in the hands of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. So we are doubly secure. We are secure in Christ and we're secure in the father. A true believer in Jesus Christ can never lose the salvation that's been given to him. You've been regenerated, you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been born again, that there are many things that happen, the spirit of God and dwelt you at the point of your salvation that will never change. And Jesus says, I want you to know you are safe in my hands and safe in the Father's hands for all of eternity. You need not fear losing that which has been given to you. So what we see is that true security, absolute security was for those in the ark, absolute security comes from the coming Messiah. The ark had how many doors to get in? One door, a single door. There's only one way in the ark. That was it. Likewise, there's only a single door for the coming to enter. The coming Messiah is the only door to enter to be saved. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And so what we find is just as the ark had a singular door, there is a single door unto salvation. Jesus himself said this once again in John 14, 6. Uh, read it with me. Jesus answered, Read it with me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one means. There's only one door to salvation. There's a false theology that's taught out there that says God's at the top of a mountain. There are many pathways up that mountain. The mountain that you, the, the pathway you pursue is just fine because God's there. And, and the scriptures say absolutely not. There's only one pathway up that mountain. That's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The, the, the one who would come as the Messiah. And so what we see are these parallels between Noah's Ark and the flood and all that happened there and the one who would come as Messiah. The second picture, this is found in Genesis chapter 22. So fast forward a few chapters in the book of Genesis. Noah is a picture of grace. The story of Abraham and Isaac is a picture of substitution. So we're looking at pictures of the coming Messiah. 
The visitation here is God once again. God spoke to Noah, and now God visits or speaks to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 1. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. Excuse me, God? If I'm Abraham, that's where I stop. Um, this is the promised son. This is the one you told me I could look up at the stars in the sky and my descendants will be that numerous. And you want me to kill him? Uh, really, God? Scriptures never say that Abraham questioned God. That's Gary questioning God. So you know the story. Abraham and, uh, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. She gets pregnant. Ladies, you should go, oh my. 90 years old, she's pregnant. Dudes, 100 years old, he impregnates her. I mean, I, I, anyway, I'm not going to go there. Uh, um, they should be headed for retirement home. Instead, they're decorating a nursery with Noah's Ark, probably, okay? I, I mean, th- there they are. Their nursery's decor is going to be in blue because God has promised them a son. And, and now, some years later, Isaac, with this bright future, all of a sudden, he, I mean, he has, he has great parents. He, he has wealthy parents. He has a peaceful land. And he is the promised one from God. Everything looks hunky-dory for Isaac. But all of a sudden, his dad gets a command from God to kill him. And there's some unanswered questions. I'd love to have some, some questions answered here. I'd like to know how old they are. It, when you start doing the math, it seems like Isaac was probably in his upper teens, maybe early 20s. Let's say 118 or 18. That makes Abraham 118. Okay? So, so we're talking about a really old man and a young guy. Remember that because we're going to talk about that in a second. And we, we, don't, we don't know the actual ages. I wonder how Sarah responded to this when Abraham came home and said, Hey, Sarah, uh, we're headed to Mount Moriah. I'm going to kill our son. I mean, imagine that. I, I'm following God's command. I, I, I've wondered, uh, there, there are a lot of questions I have. There are a lot of blanks we cannot fill in. But when we look at the rest of the text, what we see is Abraham was asked to sacrifice his most precious possession, his only son. And it's brought out. And we, we know words like his only begotten son. We read that in John three sixteen, And the emphasis in this section is not upon Isaac, but upon Abraham's faithfulness and his obedience. Would he lay his hopes, his dreams, his plans, his desires, and trust God? And that's why it's called a test. If you look at verse 1, he tested Abraham. The whole scenario seems bizarre, but remember, God never asks us to do something he's unwilling to do, and he too would be willing to sacrifice his son. So watch what happens. Drop down to verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. Now, when I read go yonder, I think they're either from Tennessee or Kentucky. Uh, and we will worship and we will return. Do you see that? I've underlined that in my book. We will worship and we will return. Abraham had the faith that they were coming back. Even if his son was sacrificed, they're coming back. The author of Hebrews, and we're not sure who that author is, in Hebrews chapter 11, we read about God's hall of faith. God's hall of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. And here's what it says about Abraham and Isaac. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises. And then in verse 19, it says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men, even from the dead, which he received back as a type. How many people had Abraham seen resurrected? Not a trick question. How many people you thought Abraham, think Abraham saw resurrected? Here's the answer right here. 
None. But he had so much faith that God would keep his promise that his son would be the one who generations would rise through that he believed even if his life was taken, he'd be resurrected. That's faith. That's faith. Now, God is not asking us to go and sacrifice our sons and daughters. That's not the point of this. Abraham was the patriarch. He was the founder. He's the anointed one of Judaism. And God was making sure that he was worthy of that. And so he responds in the way of faith and obedience. And what we see next is amazing. They climb Mount Moriah. Isaiah, if you look at verse 6, it says, And uh, Abraham, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the hand in his hand a knife and fire. So the two of them begin to walk together. And Isaac, I mean, they're probably walking in silence, don't you think? And they're walking up this mountain. I mean, they're trudging up. And Isaac is deep in thought. So you've got an 18-year-old, 20-year-old, and he's deep in thought. And he looks around and says, hey, Dad, we got a problem. And he said, uh, what is it, my son? And he said, uh, the fire and the wood you have, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, that's a pretty astute observation, right? I mean, you got fire, you got a knife, but we don't have a sacrifice, and we're gone to the mountain of sacrifice. And you know what Abraham says? He says, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Son, God's going to provide for us. He's going to provide the sacrifice. He's going to provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they come to the altar, and look at verse 9. They came to the place at which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood on and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. This tells you something about Isaac, too. Now, if a 118-year-old and an 18-year-old got in a foot race, who do you think would win? If a 118-year-old guy tried to tie up an 18-year-old guy, who do you think would get away? This tells you about the faith of Isaac as well and the trust he had in his father. I mean, an 18, 20-year-old is going to be stronger than a 118, 120-year-old. I can guarantee you that. And he lays him there, and Abraham has the knife in midair. And he's getting ready to stab the promised one. And God says, that's enough. That's enough. And the scriptures, I love what the scriptures say next. It says, he, God says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. This is verse 12. Do nothing to him. I know that you fear me, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham raised his eyes. He looked up, and there was a ram caught in his horns, in a, in a thicket by his horn. And Abraham went to take the ram and offered up the burnt offering. And here's what it says. In the place of his son. In the place of his son. I've circled it and put a star in the, my Bible there. That's substitution. He found a substitute. Isaac didn't have to die, but a ram did. So there are a lot of parallels between the coming. This is another picture being painted for us in the Old Testament. In, fact, in Hebrews 11, it says this is a type. A type is, is a specific thing spoken of in the Old Testament that refers to Christ or pictures Christ in the New Testament. So we're looking at pictures. The first picture is Noah, a picture of grace. This is a picture of Isaac, the substituted one, the one who was substituted for. And what we see regarding Isaac and Jesus are these, these comparisons. First of all, Isaac was the long-promised son to Abraham and Sarah. He was long-promised. Jesus is a long-promised son of God. All the songs we sang this morning looked ahead to the coming Messiah. Come thou long-expected Jesus. We, we sang all the waiting here for you. The nation of Israel is waiting. But God sent him at the right time. In Galatians chapter 4 it says, but when the, time, when the set time had come, God sent 
his son. Isaac was a long-awaited promised one. Jesus was a long-awaited promised one. Isaac came about by miraculous conception. When a 90-year-old woman gets pregnant, it's a miraculous conception. Okay? When, when, Jesus came, when Jesus was conceived, we know it was a miraculous conception. You remember Mary's words when Gabriel came to her, how can this be? How can I have a baby since I'm a virgin? How can that possibly happen? How can that happen? And so what we see is they both came about by miraculous conception. Third parallel, uh, Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice. We just read about it in Genesis 22. Jesus carried the wood for his sacrifice as well. When he climbed Golgotha, he had his own cross that he was carrying. They both carried their own wood to a place of sacrifice. Isaac submitted to his father. We've already talked about that. Jesus submitted to his father over and over in the scriptures. Jesus says, I come to do what? The will of my father. In fact, at Golgotha, remember when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to Golgotha? When he's, on his, when he's on his way to Golgotha, he's on his knees, he's sweating drops of blood, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup, yet not my will, but your will be done. He was submitted to the Father to do his will. And, and then we see Isaac was provided a sacrifice, Jesus became our sacrifice. Isaac was provided with a sacrifice, a ram. Jesus became our sacrifice. He became our substitute, rather. He became our substitute. He died in our place. Scriptures say God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are made righteous when we trust Christ as our Savior. And finally, Isaac was loved by his father. Jesus was loved by his father. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. We see that two times, the one and only son in Genesis chapter 22. Jesus is our substitute. This is a picture of a guy named Maximilian Kolbe. You guys know I love World War II stuff. In the Auschwitz death camp, on one particular day, the commandant called 10 men to come forward. 10 Jewish men to come forward whose lives would be taken. They'd be shot. There's a firing squad in place. 10 men were called forward. One of the men had a large family. I think he had eight children. I can't remember exactly. And when he was called forward, the firing squad's in place, but he fell on the ground begging the commandant not to kill him because he had so many, he had a wife and kids. Out of the shadow stepped a Franciscan priest named Maximilian Colby. That's him. And he fell on his knees next to this man. And he said, take my life. I have no wife, I have no children. The commandant laughed. He said, I'm serious, take my life. The first man was allowed to live. He went back in line and he survived Auschwitz. On the day in June when his life was spared, every year after that, as long as he was alive, he would go to the grave of Maximilian Kolbe and place flowers there on the one who had given his life for him. Maximilian Kolbe was not killed right at that time. The commandant placed him in a cell in solitary confinement, withheld food and water until he starved to death. Every year, he would go and pay homage and give thanks for the one who gave his life for him. The parallel is so clear, isn't it? I mean, we honor a man who gave his life on behalf of someone else. We worship a God who gave his life on behalf of us. When we look ahead to the coming Messiah, we see a picture of grace and we see a picture of our substitute. In the third picture we see, and I could paint many pictures, I'm just choosing three from the Old Testament, is a picture of sacrifice. A picture of sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. 
You can look on your apps or in your Bibles. If you don't know where to look in your Bible, close the pages. Look for the clean pages in the front, and you'll find Leviticus. Leviticus is a sacrificial system. It's right there. Leviticus 16 is a day of atonement. The day of atonement in Hebrew are the two words, Yom for day, Kippur for atonement. Yom Kippur. Heard of that before? And we've taught this many times. On day of Yom Kippur, one priest was selected to go into the Holy of Holies. And what Leviticus 16 tells us, beginning in verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots for two goats, one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. So the scapegoat is a goat. The priest would lay his hands on the forehead of that goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the sins of that goat, and they would banish him to the wilderness. He would carry their sins away for another year. The other goat was not so fortunate. He would have his throat slit, blood caught, and uh, then the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and there he would see the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones had been looking for for the last 30 years, but we knew where it was back then, and he would pour the blood of the, spill, he'd pour the, blood of the, the spilled animal onto the mercy seat, got welt above that. He would look down through the blood to see his people. That's what Jesus does for us. It's a beautiful picture of the Messiah who would come. And what we see related to the Day of Atonement is this. For Christ suffered once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ became your sacrifice. He not only became your substitute, but he became your sacrifice. He sacrificed willingly his life on your behalf. And so when we think of the coming Messiah, whoever that would be, we think of this one. See, the nation had a death that was postponed annually. In fact, if you look at the last verse of Leviticus 16, it says, you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once a year. And so when you look at Leviticus 16.34, what you see is every year you're going to do this because we've got to put the sins of the people behind us until the true sacrifice comes. And in Hebrews, it says, Christ, our once and for all sacrifice. He became the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He was the coming Messiah. He was the one whose picture was taken. So I show those Santa Claus pictures with the happiest time of the year to show you there's an inconsistency there. I just painted three pictures from the scriptures. And those pictures know a picture of grace. It's a picture of Isaac, a substitute. A picture of Day of Atonement, a sacrifice. And those must correlate with someone, the coming Messiah. And all those things are fulfilled by one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the pictures. Let's look at two promises. Two promises for you. These promises, first one goes back to Numbers. That's some of the clean pages as well. Numbers chapter 24. And it's a promise of one who would bring light. It's a promise of one who would bring light. So whoever the coming Messiah is, is going to bring light. And so in Numbers chapter 24, there's a funny prophet named Balaam. He's an interesting study in himself. And uh, Balaam is given these words from God. The visitation is God to Balaam to give to the people. And it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So he's talking about the coming Messiah. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A scepter is that which rules. And we know from David, the promise given to David, that one day one of his descendants would rule over Israel. I want to focus on that first part. A star will come out of Jacob. Whoever the coming Messiah would be, would be like a star. Well, what is the function of a star? A star brings what? Light. A star brings light. So whoever the coming Messiah would be, would one who would bring light into the world. So there's no mistake when Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. 
Jesus knew he was the star. He was the one who would bring light into the world. And so he testifies of that in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. He would be a source of light. I've got a love-hate relationship with Christmas lights. Anybody else? I mean, it's, I've shared this with you. If you were here about three Christmas Eves ago, I used this story. I mean, I don't know what happens to our lights, but we have a demon that has followed us from one house to the next. So when we get Christmas stuff out, we've got about 100 crates in our attic that I take down and, and uh, we open up all this Christmas stuff. And when we pick those crates up at the end of the Christmas season, every light's working. The lights on our Christmas trees, the lights on our mantles, the lights at the front door, all those lights are working. But over the course of the year, in those boxes, in our attic, demons attack the lights. Do you have that demon in your attic? We all need to have an exorcism, I think. So anyway, what happens is we, we plug stuff in and it doesn't work. So I don't know, about five, six years ago, we bought a new Christmas tree. Bev told me our Christmas tree was dying. We need a new tree. I said, it can't be dying. It's plastic. And she said, it's dying. We need a new tree. So we got a new tree. And uh, we got this tree. I can't remember where we got it. It doesn't matter where we got it. I don't need to say where we got it. Because what happened is, you guys know I am mechanically challenged. What do I have in my toolbox? Two things. What are they? Duct tape and WD-40. That's right. Okay. Duct tape, if it moves and it shouldn't, you've got duct tape. If it shouldn't, it doesn't, you've got WD-40, and the world is good. So, so it takes me a half an hour to assemble the, the Christmas tree stand. Why do they make that so stinking complicated? You've got to have a PhD in mechanical engineering, put together a Christmas tree stand, or be just a little brighter than I am, which is easy. So we get it together, and we put the first section of the Christmas tree in, Bev plugs it in, the lights come on. And we do the second section, we plug it in, the lights come on. This is a brand new tree right out of the box. We pay $200 from someplace in town to get a brand new Christmas tree. We put the third section in, what happened, babe? No lights. There's a demon in the box of a new Christmas tree because it came into our house. And so I, we unplug everything, we plug it all back in, is that right? And when we do, there's still no lights. I'm saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I actually, I, I'm, I'm over there. Bev's working on light. Whoever, whoever made it so that lights, that series of lights, when one goes out, they all go out. That's a rich man, I'm going to tell you that. Because you've got to replace everything, right? And, and so Bev's job is to, my fingers are too fat to start pulling out lights. And so Bev starts doing that. I'm sitting down watching football and praying for her. She's cussing like a, no, she doesn't do that. She's praising God too, her hands lifted high, right? Just like that song we sang, and the lights don't work. And so she said, baby, you need to call the store. So I call the store, I get a young lady on the phone, and I explain to her, we got a brand new Christmas tree, just came out of the box, I've got two sections up, third section doesn't work, the lights don't come on. And she said, sir, what I would do if I were you, I'd go buy some lights somewhere and wrap a new strand around that. And I said, praise God from whom all blessings are. She said, sir, if I were you, what I would do, if you're not going to do that, I would take it apart. And I'm thinking, take it apart? It took me two hours to put it together. And so I don't even remember what happened. What did we do? We brought it back and got a new one. Is that what we did? We packed it up, got a new one. And I said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> Here's what I want you to know. The light of the world will never go out. Never going to happen. You don't have to worry about that one. Jesus came as the light of the world. That, those Christmas lights that go out in the attic, the light of the world will never go out. 
the light of the world will dispel darkness in the world we live in. The light of the world will dispel darkness from your life and dispel darkness from my life. The light of the world is Jesus himself. And here's the great news. After studying eternity, the light of the world will light up all of eternity. You go to Revelation 21, 22 and read about it, and what you find is that he is the one who lights up all of eternity forever. And so you don't have to fear. Some of you are walking in darkness right now. And the light of the world desires to dispel that darkness of your life. One of the verses we sing in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is he will dispel the darkness, the light of the world coming into this world. The final promise is a promise of peace. The promise of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah the prophet is visited by God and he speaks. God speaks to him. And uh, it's a very familiar Christmas passage. I'd like for us to read this together. We've done it the other two hours. Would you read with me? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen? Prince of Peace. The reason I chose that of all the promises that are out there is because when I look in our world, we lack peace. We live in a world that struggles for peace. I mean, I, I look at the terrorism around our world. I look at the, the, Chicago has had over 550 murders on its street this year already. But we lack peace. When I look at the world we live in, I see the marginalized, I see poverty, I see racism. We lack peace. We live in a culture and a world where peace is lacking. I, 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 then I look at individuals and how much we struggle for peace praying for folks addicted to various things, praying for folks that struggle because they live in chaos. What about you? If you want peace, it comes from the Prince of Peace. And the ultimate peace begins a relationship between you and the Father. When Jesus came and said, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And so there's a peace. They were looking for peace with the Romans, but the greatest peace is not peace between nations. The greatest peace is between man and God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate peace. <clears throat> there may be chaos in our world, but you can have peace with God who's given his life for you. It's put this way by Paul in Colossians chapter 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The coming Messiah would shed his blood so we could have peace. And so the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6, when we look at the promise given, it's fulfilled by the one who came to bring peace. Three pictures and two promises. Picture of grace through Noah. Picture of substitution through Isaac. Picture of sacrifice through the Day of Atonement. And a promise, a promise given to us of peace and a promise given to us of light as we know the Savior. I don't know what's your favorite Christmas gift. When I was a kid, my favorite Christmas gift was a wildcat bicycle made by Murray. And so if you're in your 60s, you may remember that. Banana seat, high handlebars, so you could do wheelies on them. Now, I was about 10 when I got that. I weighed 100 pounds at that time. 
but I could still do a wheelie half a block long in Marrera, Louisiana. Man, I could pull that thing up and gravity would fight me, but I'd pull it up and then we came down at night. We couldn't wait for the mosquito truck to come around so we could ride behind the fog of that mosquito truck. So all my friends have died in their early 60s because of that. I love that wild-cut bicycle. It was a great gift. Man, I had it for years. But the greatest gift ever given, the greatest gift ever given left under a tree by a father was a gift of a son. And some people have taken that gift and looked at it and not responded to it. Other folks have taken that gift and shaken it like a kid but not opened it. My prayer is you open the gift and recognize it's God who bestows that grace upon you. And he desires all men to come to him. And you would begin this Advent season, the candle of hope, by recognizing the one who came, the one who all this pointed to, was Jesus the Messiah, your substitute, your sacrifice, who extends his grace so you can walk in light and have peace every day. Father, thank you. Thank you for painting pictures and giving promises. Thank you for giving us a word in the Old Testament that looks ahead to the coming Messiah and a word in the New Testament that looks back. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. So as we enter the Christmas season, we do so with great hope. If you're here today and not sure if Christ is your Savior, I invite you to make sure of that right now, right where you sit. He is the light who has come into the world, who offers you peace. He is your substitute, your sacrifice, and extends grace to you. And right now, salvation is yours for the asking. He's paid the price. Would you accept the offer he makes to you this day? And when somebody gives their life on your behalf, like Maximilian Colby did, when God gives his life for you, how can we not pay him homage and worship and honor and adore him every day? We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Blessings.